With ongoing protests in Iran, things are heating up with the government retaliating against many of the activists on the streets in Iran. And here today to talk about this with us is Moj Madera, who's a founding member of the Iranian Diaspora Collective. I'm Jessica Burbank. This is the conversation. So thanks for being with us. Really appreciate you coming on to talk about this. Thanks for having me. I'm really happy to be here before the holidays and talk about this important issue. Yeah, speaking of the holidays, they can be a big distraction. People don't want to pay attention to the more serious things going on in the world. And what's going on now is is people are being publicly executed. Not only that, but being killed without due process in Iran. Protesters, women being shot in their eyes and genitals. And over Thanksgiving, seven protesters were publicly executed. Can you tell us more about what is going on in Iran as you've been following it closely? A great question, thanks for leading with that. It's an urgent time. Most of us in the diaspora have chosen to downplay the holidays as much as we can personally, because we understand that the Islamic Republic is counting on the diaspora in the West to tune out and to stop being pedal to the metal on paying attention, especially to those executions. And not only are we seeing a number of executions, but we're simply seeing young women and young people just being disappeared. There's something to the tune of 3,800 people right now that are just simply missing. That means that these are people who have not been actually arrested or charged, but simply just missing. We're starting to see bodies washed up in rivers and ponds, various different sort of remote areas. And so I think the diaspora as a whole, all of us have sort of committed to really staying focused, paying attention, especially to the executions and keeping the pressure on, especially through the holidays, because we know that this is their playbook. Right, it's an understatement probably to say that there have been tense relations between the United States and Iran in the past, particularly our governments, right? But as, as citizens and as just everyday people, we've seen a lot of folks take to social media to spread information among the diaspora and, and beyond. What's the role of people in, United, in the United States to engage with what's going on in Iran and, and spread information and keep it in the news cycle? Look, I think the role of the first generation diaspora, right? People like myself who were born here or grew up here have now come into a position of influence or some success. It's no secret that many Iranians have come here and built a good life for themselves as entrepreneurs and excelled within our specific fields. And I think there's a call to action. Now you get to a certain point in your life, you realize you have resources to give, you know that you can lean in. And on some level, it's giving you the ability to process your parents' trauma in a different perspective than you did before. You know How I experienced the Islamic Republic and the trauma of that to my family was very different as a teenager and as a young person, as an adult. I have a different perspective for the oppression and the honestly, the terrorism that many of our families have been facing. And so the role now is that there's two to three million of us in the diaspora across Europe and the United States and Canada. Our role now is to do something about it and to come to the aid of the Iranian people and support them and what they're asking for. And what they're asking for is a new constitution, a democracy and the end of theocracy. Right, how can people in the United States understand what really is going on? We hear about the morality police. We hear about women being forced to wear hijab. Many women, you know, don't find wearing the hijab is oppressive, but there are others who believe this is a matter of of religious freedom and, and personal freedom over their bodies. 
How can they understand the decision women are making and why people are taking to the streets? Well, I think the most important thing to understand is the difference between the Islamic Republic and the Iranian people. Iran is the birthplace of humanitarian movements and humanitarian theology and thinking. We're talking about a 2500 year old culture where for the majority of that culture, it's been matriarchy. It's been a culture of women being first, women being educated, women voting. You're talking about a culture built on the on a very rich women led culture. And so the past 43 years, and honestly, the Islamic Republic has really been trying to put the screws to the Iranian people since essentially even 1953, you look back, they've been really trying to push forward this new Islamic regime that, as you can see, has just ultimately been rejected from the culture of the Iranian people. Iranian people have just downright rejected Islam on this fundamental level, this type of theocracy. And they are now saying they're willing to pay the price under any condition to have a democracy, to have a new constitution, and to have the end of theocracy. One of the things that we talk about is that there's a generation of Iranians growing up that are probably atheists, that are at this point just rejecting the concept of God and Islam as it is, because the crime and violence and the terror that is taking place in the name of, of God is just so counterintuitive to any faith out there at all. I mean, we're talking about, and it's just greed, right? If you wanna talk about the why, this isn't about God. This is about control of women and this is about corporate greed. This is about uh, there's 2 million barrels of oil being sold a day. And where does that money go? It's certainly not benefiting the Iranian people, which it's no secret their economy is broken. I mean. The Islamic Republic is a failed state. Love that you make this about about democracy and the, the difference between the government and the people. Uh, when we think about the United States constantly putting another country in the media cycle, I always get extremely nervous because usually they're fomenting support for intervention. Uh, in the past, the United States has been involved in, in destabilizing Iran. And this time I get nervous uh, whenever a country's in the news cycle in the United States because it signals to me perhaps the United States military is trying to do exactly that. And I always say we should make this calculation. Would we be better off or worse off if we try and go into this this other country? Clearly, there's not solid motivations or or pure motivations for going into Iran, given the amount of oil they have. We know that it's it's usually about resources. So when we see it in the media cycle, what's the next step we would want to have happen? Would we want the United Nations to intervene and really push for a new constitution to be written? What would be the next step there? Look, this is a really important point. Iranians are not calling for military intervention. The diaspora is not calling for military intervention. And look, we're in a sophisticated time where military intervention is not the way. What is the way is the delegitimizing of the Islamic Republic. The utter and complete delegitimizing from whether it's their emoji flag to their name being recognized in any government or political space. At this point, it is fair to say they are not the legitimate government that represents the Iranian people. They're still, you know, whether it's Germany and China doing business with them, those 2 million barrels of oil a day are going somewhere. We need to shut that down. You know, there's discussions about what to do with their embassies, at the very least, recalling their diplomats. I think there has to be an immediate freezing of assets for all of the top tier clergy 
and generals within the Islamic Republic and their families. Their families can't just come to Canada and the United States, get an education and live freely, do what they want. While the Iranian people are suffering and they're living off the dole of the Iranian people. I mean, look, Iran has a huge percentage of natural resources, uranium, copper, zinc, oil. This this country has the resources to have a very healthy GDP and should not be, you know, quote unquote, access of evil. We should be access of opportunity within the Middle East. I think a stable democratic Iran, a new constitutional Iran is a huge, amazing opportunity for the Middle East. And I think, look, there have been efforts to make this happen in the past, and maybe those efforts weren't executed correctly. But I think stabilizing the Middle East benefits. First of all, we've got a war in Russia. We've got the Islamic Republic supporting Russia. You heard President Zelensky talking about, you know, the the aid of drones to the Russian government against Ukraine right now. We we cannot have their terror continue to spread. We want a safe and stable Israel. We want a safe and stable Middle East. We want them to stop funding terror in Syria and Hezbollah. And so, look, there's. My appeal to everyone is it's good business and it's the humanitarian thing to do to use every measure we can, not through military, but to end the Islamic Republic. Absolutely. Now, the total amount of people that have been publicly executed is a small number compared to the people who have been injured at the protests and who have died out of fear of not going to the hospital because they would be arrested if they were to do so. Can you say more about the tensions between protesters and the police and the lack of access to health care because the police have been deeply involved in anyone who's gone to the hospital for protesting? So we are in a, a, a very complicated moment in Iran. You have service providers, healthcare providers, doctors, physicians, surgeons that are desperate to provide medical care and aid to those who have been injured. But those same people are facing torture. They are facing the death sentence. They're considering it a crime against God to support protesters. And many people honestly are getting injured on accident. They're innocent little boys like Keon. You know, he was an innocent bystander in a car. So, you know, you have a country in crisis. You have a people in crisis because they fundamentally know that what's being asked of them by the government is immoral and unethical. And so. There's 18 plus thousand people that have been arrested that we know. There's 38 some hundred people that are disappeared that we know. There's 495 protesters that have been murdered. You've got students in there, you've got children in there. And I think the most horrendous part of this, at least you know, for me, is you are hearing CNN's report around women being raped, and you're hearing a lot about sexual-based. Gender-based crimes, people being shot in their genitals, in their eyeballs. This is this is beyond. They're just beyond remorse at this. At this point, you know, you can tell they're so desperate to stay in power that they're willing to do anything on a public stage, on a world stage. I think because of our phones, because of access to Telegram and WhatsApp, they understand that we are watching them and they're not backing down. Thank you so much for coming on and talking with us about this. Where can people follow your work and find you? Sure, so you can follow my work at MOJ on Instagram and MOJISM, Mojism on Twitter. 
Please follow the Iranian Diaspora Collective on Instagram. We have a great landing page. We have a lot of resources there to other nonprofits you can contribute to. We have an open document called How to Talk About Iran. It's a living document that over 50,000 people have downloaded that just gives you basic stats on what is going on and helps really onboard. Our goal is to really onboard Western audiences, American English speaking audiences to this issue and to reacquaint the Western world to who the Iranian people really are. And if you look at who we really are, you're seeing young artists and creatives and content creators and YouTubers, you're seeing boys and girls and adults who look and act just like us. And they've honestly been veiled and they're dying to be seen. And so our role, the Iranian Diaspora Collective's role is to simply reintroduce the Iranian people to the West to create communication and aid. And our ask is that you just give us a shot and get to know us. Thank you so much for coming on and talking about this. Really appreciate your perspective. Thank you for having me and hope to come back again sometime. The planet is burning and we are not doing nearly enough to bring the energy sector up to speed when it comes to renewable energy transitioning away from fossil fuels and carbon carbon emitting energy sources. And we're also not investing in the necessary infrastructure to protect us from pending climate disasters. Our kids are inheriting a world that is quite literally burning. And today we're joined with one of those kids who is doing something about it. Ajani Stella joins us today, who's the president of Kids Fight Climate Change. Thank you so much for coming on. Ajani, why don't you introduce your work and tell us why you started this organization? Thanks so much for having me on here, Jessica. It's really an honor to be here with you guys. Um, Yeah, so as you mentioned, my organization is called Kids Fight Climate Change. And what we're doing is we're a youth-led climate education organization. So we're focusing on helping young people learn about the climate crisis in a way that's simple, understandable, and accessible. So I founded Kids Fight Climate Change because I noticed there's a significant lack in climate education for young people. Especially when information is centered on older students or adults, it focuses more on the technical scientific aspects. And it's hard to find it scattered across the internet. So what I'm really trying to do and my team is trying to do is synthesize information, produce articles that we know can relate to students and relate to young people. And then have that on our website and then go into classrooms to help teach them, to encourage kids to the site to learn on their own. And to really try to create a collaborative process with young people rather than the lecture based scientific aspect that's often found in climate conversations. So can you tell us a little bit about how you became aware of the climate crisis? You're 16 years old, this is a huge thing to take on to educate your generation, younger generations about climate change. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, so my climate career, if you will, really started in fifth grade with my science teacher, Vicki Sando, who actually sits on my board of directors now. And she was really engaged in um, talking to us about the simple stuff about um, climate change, the greenhouse effect, how it's going to uh, impact our lives, biodiversity. Um, I was lucky enough in my elementary school to have a green roof on top of our building. And as a result, I found a new appreciation for nature. And Vicky, uh, Miss Vicky was able to help foster that connection. And because of that education that I received, I actually got my first speaking opportunity in fifth grade 
And that was when um, I spoke to the New York City Teachers Pension Fund Board of Directors, the group that handles all of the retirement money, uh, investing all the retirement money for public school teachers in the city, um, urging them to divest all their funds from fossil fuels. And two years later, the campaign was successful. But that that um, that speech that to them in the financial district downtown on the 44th floor of the tall building um, really really jumpstarted my career right there. So in November 2021, all of this work took you to attend COP26, which is the United Nations. It's the big global climate conference. Can you tell us a little bit about what it was like being there, what you learned, or rather what you taught them? <laughs> um, yeah, at COP26, it was a really interesting experience for me because I went in there with an interesting combination of hope and cynicism. So. Obviously, I understand the um, the dismay that comes from climate activists all around, and the dismay that I feel where climate conferences are not doing nearly enough. Right? Um, we're seeing that, that was the 26th United Nations conference. Um, we we saw Paris, but we saw no follow through. We have all of these agreements, but there's no implementation. Um, so it, it it can feel really frustrating. But the other side of that is. At COP, there um, uh, in in 2021, there were about 10,000 delegates from countries. Then there were 30,000 delegates from nonprofits, from um, from the from the private sector, from other groups that are really in, actually genuinely engaged in in um, climate action. And those are the people that are pushing the needle, that are um, really forcing governments to take action. So being on the other side of the curtain and seeing how it's all done, seeing how the sausage is made is really interesting to me. Because a lot of what the public sees about COP26, about um, COPs in general, is not what is actually happening. The, the meetings that are on TV, that are publicized, where we don't see anything getting done, that's not what's going on. We're seeing delegates um, go into back rooms, sneak into other offices for coffee, and that's where all the agreements are hammered out. At the at the um, COP in 2022 in um, last November in Egypt, I wasn't there, but I was reading a story about how the delegates literally stayed overnight. The last night they didn't go to sleep; they were strewn all over the conference center, hammering out the last few measures of this deal. So it's really showing me that there are people that actually do care, um, even in the high levels of government. So it's it is still really inspiring. At to, to witness that at the same time as we continue to push for more action. So there's a lot of backroom deals, but some of those backroom deals are rooted in, in heart and, and pure intentions. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> That's definitely the perfect blend of uh, <laughs> criticism and having a positive outlook. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about uh, inequality because we know that climate disasters will disproportionately affect communities of color and low income communities that are just like living in in houses that are susceptible to climate disasters. These, these are people who struggle to afford home insurance, but maybe live super close to a, a coastline. And we know that these are usually communities that don't receive as much public funding. And it's also the case that there are disparities in terms of economic inequality when it comes to the quality of education you can get about climate change. Can you speak a little bit to that? I know it's one of the reasons you founded this organization. Yeah, so there's there have been a lot of strides recently in climate education across the country. Um, 
in earlier this year, New Jersey mandated climate education and Connecticut just a couple of weeks ago did. But by and large, climate education is still very much um, teacher by teacher, school by school. What we're seeing is that teachers that have the resources, that have the knowledge, and then have the time are able to, in, to invest that into climate education. And that's why I, um, I was able to receive climate education as an elementary schooler. Uh, it's in a lot of the schools I work with, it's because they have the extra time and resources to be able to bring in um, activists and experts. But a lot of um, underprivileged schools don't get that. So what we're seeing, what you were kind of alluding to, is the cyclical effect. Not only are these communities disinvested and disproportionately impacted by the climate crisis, but then they're not receiving the, the education and the training, the tools that they need to advocate for themselves in the future. Because for me, that's what climate education is all about. We, can, we need to learn about the science. Everyone needs to understand climate change is happening. But we can use that as a conduit for action. And if we don't have that in these essential communities, then we're going to keep perpetuating these effects in the future. Can you say more about why you find it's important for kids fighting climate change to be youth-led and youth-focused rather than bringing in people who are who are much older than you all? Yeah, so I've actually received a lot of feedback about this um, throughout all the school talks that I've done and um, through the workshops that I've that I've run. And it's really great to see that kids actually relate to other kids. Um, we bring in adults, we bring in experts, they talk for an hour, they answer questions. Kids get bored. Like we can pretend like we're interested, and oftentimes we actually are. But by and large, adults do not know how to talk to kids. Meanwhile, um, I go in there, I'm 16, uh, I'm speaking to eight, to eight year olds, to other 16 year olds, um, any, any youth, and they're able to see. That guy is actually just like me. Um, he he started his activism when he was ten. He um, he talks like me. He's just as short as me. I'm very short. Um, and we're able to form some sort of connection in just those forty minutes. And because of that, kids are actually listening. They're picking up. They're they're realizing we can do this. It's a big part of why I, I start every um, speech that I do with a conversation about um, my own story, my own story as an activist. Because in order to effectively have climate conversations and climate education, we need to humanize that process. Otherwise, we're, we're, risk, we're risking just um, talking, to a, uh, uh, talking to a wall, basically, because we're not able to really get in and um, have these kids understand us. So having that youth connection is really key. And this is really serious work to be doing. I mean, the fate of the world is in our hands. And a lot of people say, well, you're so young. Why are you doing such serious work? Oftentimes, the response I give is, is our generation doesn't have much of a choice. It's really about survival. And it, it sounds like you all have stepped up to the plate when it comes to that. Can you speak a little bit more about that? Because this is very serious work to be doing as a 16-year-old. It definitely is very serious work, but like you're saying, we're living in a very serious time. Um, I think that definitely, if I was born just a few years ago, I don't think I'd be as um, involved, as passionate. Um, I like to say the, the one good thing that we can get out of the Trump presidency is that it inspired a whole new wave of activism 
because of all the horrible things that he did. And it, it, it showed me from a young age that politics really does matter and that, um, that we each have a voice. And because of that, I was able to get involved from, um, from since 2017. I, I, I saw the impact that we all have um, and I was able to master uh, my own voice and really um, go into that conversation. So I was, um, yeah, it, it, it's essential for, for me as, as a young person and um, for everyone around me to to have that experience. I really appreciate that the the key component here for you is to educate uh, mm-hmm. this generation, uh, the young generation. I always said with organizing, it's three steps. One, educate, two, agitate, three, organize. Can you just say more about taking action? Because you've successfully led charges to inspire entire boards to divest from fossil fuels. Can you say more about the the education to organization pipeline getting people to take action? Yeah, so what I'm what I'm really looking towards is using education to inspire. So these kids, they may maybe they've heard about climate change before. They, they know a bit about the basics, they know it's a, a problem, but they see it as an issue that only the high levels of government can solve. I feel that my job as a youth climate educator is to really dispel that notion and show people that they actually do have a voice. That's why I was saying I start, I start um, with my story, I talk about other activists, I talk about what we can do. And I really try to make any conversation, any lecture I have an interactive and engaging experience. Because then it starts to open up those gears in, in their mind. It, it, everything starts turning. They start figuring out, oh, I actually do have ideas. I, I have a way that I can help solve this problem and help um, help find a solution. And from that, through those baby steps, um, we're able to get them into that, as you put it, um, education to organization to action pipeline. Thank you so much for talking with us, Johnny. Uh, you know the planet's in good hands, and the kids are all <laughs> right with you. Uh, can you tell people where to find your work and and Kids Fight Climate Change's work? Sure, thank you. Um, if you look up KidsFightClimateChange.org or just Google the organization, it's the first hit. Um, there, it, our website is an online repository of educational information, and you can click the button to contribute or to volunteer. Awesome. Thank you so much for talking with us tonight. Thanks so much, Jessica.